Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Um, you'll have to excuse my raspiness. I've been fighting a sinus infection all week. Uh, but I'm happy to be here, uh, glad to worship our Creator uh, together uh, this morning. If this is your first time, welcome. Glad to have you join us as we worship today. Uh, this is the day uh, known as Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day that begins the Holy Week. Holy Week is what led Jesus Christ to his crucifixion on what is known as Good Friday and then followed by his triumphant resurrection on what is commonly known as Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, as many like to say. I want to encourage you all uh, this week to really spend some time looking at uh, the specific events that led Christ uh, to the cross, to really uh, look at uh, what each day represents, what happened uh, while he was led there and obediently followed the Father's plan to his death. And as you do this, my prayer and my hope would be that you would grow into deeper understanding and appreciation even for uh, the Father's plan, uh, the Son's obedience, and the Spirit's application of salvation to then deepen your joy as we enter into uh, the Easter weekend. Today we're going to continue our study of the Gospel of John. We're going to look at John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. John chapter 2, verses 13 and 17. If you're new to the Bible, that's all right. Ask for some help. But we really think it's important for you to, to find your place, to look at the words that are written here. John chapter 2, Pastor Brandon uh, preached a wonderful message last week on verses 1 through 12 as we saw the miracle of Jesus, the wedding feast. Today we look at this passage, 13 through 17. I'm going to read this for us and ask God to help us as we seek to understand more of our Savior. Verse 13 reads this, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Let us pray.
Father God, we ask in this moment that you would help us. Father, I desperately need you to work in and through this text to penetrate the hearts of those that are here. Father, we trust that your word will not return void. So we want to stick to it. We want to see what you have to teach each and every one of us. Father, we pray and I ask that you would use this text to humble the haughty, humble the proud, the one that may have walked in thinking that they have it all together and have no need for a Savior. Father, we pray that you would in turn also use this passage to exalt the Savior. That you would use this story to show the importance of worshiping the true God. That anyone who walked in today that does not know you would be drawn to the throne of mercy through Christ and Christ alone. Father, I, I have little energy this morning, so I ask you to just move. I ask you that you would speak, that you would just move in a way that is far beyond my comprehension. So, Father, we ask that you would change us, you would transform us, you would help us to leave here different than we walked in, what we know not. We ask that you would teach us, and what we are not, we ask that you would make us, and what we have not, we ask that you would give us by your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name. God's people said, amen. I want to start with a question this morning, and I want to ask you something that I want you to be very honest with. What makes you angry? What makes you angry? What, what gets you riled up? What, what draws something out of you and, and pushes you towards anger and frustration? All anger in and of itself is not wrong. Now, there are ways in which we can display anger that we can be in accordance to what God's word tells us to live. When we're angry at the things that God is angry at, we, we find ourselves in alignment with Scripture. It's prescribed to us in Scripture, and there is nowhere in Scripture that we see the righteous anger of our Savior himself as we see it here when it is aimed at unrighteous worship. Righteous anger towards unrighteous worship is indeed a right form of anger. There's a lot of examples of this. We see Jesus once calling the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He says that you're doing these things on the outside, but inside there is, you're empty. There's no true worship here. Uh, there's other times when uh, Jesus displays anger towards things. Uh, he calls Herod a fox and not talking about the cute 
little animal, uh, but says that he is uh, actually mischievous, and there's something that he's doing that is wrong here. In Mark chapter 3, verse 5, when Jesus is healing the man with the withered hand, uh, he looks around and he, he sees the Pharisees and he knows what's happening. He knows that they are, they're saying, hey, you shouldn't be doing this type of thing on the Sabbath. What you're doing is, is wrong worship, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no, no. What I'm doing is my Father's will. And here's what he says. He says, the gospel writer writes, he looked around at them in anger. He was angry at their hearts. He was angry with them, and he was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. There are other examples of this as well. This is not limited to Jesus Christ alone. Uh, The apostle Paul uh, gives us plenty of examples of righteous anger in the New Testament, right? He tells the church in Galatia, if anyone preaches another gospel, then what should they be? Accursed. Or in other words, they should be damned. If they preach the wrong thing, if they present a wrong form of worship, then guess what? They should be damned. Uh, Most of Paul's writings were corrective writings instructing the church in what? In right worship, in right doctrine, in right practice. And while not being, he wasn't necessarily angry in all of those letters. I do believe we could say there is a righteous indignation that is taking place when he addresses some of the, the, the wrong practices that are happening there. Uh, the short letter of Jude, um, the one portion that we Read when he starts off his epistle, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, like, hey, I I wish that everything was okay. I I wish that we could just all say, hey, let's high five and say Jesus and everything is fine. He says, no, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He goes on in verse 4, he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. He says they're taking gospel, they're perverting it. They're they're using it for something that it was not intended to be used for. In Acts chapter 5, right, we read of Ananias and Sapphira being killed because what? They lied. They they presented a a, a false worship. They said, yeah, we're giving everything that we have. We're, we're doing the right thing. We're worshiping God in a way that we've been called to worship. Falsely presenting themselves as giving something that they didn't give. You look at the Old Testament, we see time and time again, God telling his people, right, 
but right worship is mandatory. Brothers and sisters, we should care about the way our God is worshipped. We should take worship for our God serious. John Calvin is quoted here that I think is very helpful. He says, those who set up a fictitious worship merely worship and adore their own delirious fancies. Indeed, they would never dare so to trifle with God had they not previously fashioned him after their own childish conceits, end quote. See, when we create a God in our own image, then we are easily uh, lending ourselves to uh, the opportunity to, to worship him however we please. But when we look at the God of the Bible, when we see the words of our Savior, we're told and we're shown that we cannot take worship so lightly. As we look at this passage, I want to just give us three quick headings here under the title of Christ's Righteous Anger for Unrighteous Worship. And here's kind of how we see this story played out. And we're going to walk through this story. We're going to look at what is happening here. And then we're going to just make some quick applications. First, we see the situation. Then we'll see the response. And then we'll see the reason. Pretty simple. Situation, the response, and the reason. So Jesus has just performed his first miracle in a very personal and intimate setting with family and friends at a wedding. And then we are told in verse 12 that he moves on to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And then here in our text, John tells us of another transition in verse 13. Look there with me. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So here we read that the time of the Passover was at hand. I, I talked about this a few weeks ago, but as a refresher, the Passover feast is a Jewish celebration is commemorating their exodus from Egyptian slavery. Uh, you may recall that the Israelites were enslaved by Pharaoh. God sent Moses as his representative to command Pharaoh to let my people go. He says, you got to get them out of there. But what happened? Pharaoh would not comply. He would not listen to what God said here. So God sent nine very disturbing plagues, uh, various kind of severity uh, levels there, but Pharaoh was still not willing to obey. So what happens? God says, I'm going to send a tenth plague, uh, and this one's going to be pretty drastic. 
Turn over to Exodus chapter 12. I want to want you to just kind of see Genesis, Exodus, second book of your Bible, chapter 12. Let's just read this. So you see this institution of this feast. So this is where they're getting the Passover feast from. Exodus chapter 12. We're going to look at verse, uh, we'll start at verse 5. He says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it up from the sheep of or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then in verse 7, he says, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So they're going to, they're going to, the Israelites are going to take a lamb, they're going to slay this lamb. They're going to put some blood on the top of their door frame. They're going to put it on the doorpost. Okay, that's what's going on right here. And then they're going to eat. Verse 8, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. So God even gives them instruction on how they should eat this. Then in verse 9, he says, do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head with its legs and its inner parts. That's, that's kind of gross, but hey. <clears throat> you shall not let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's, what? Passover. Uh, let me just give you a little clarification, the reason why they have to eat it in haste, why they got their, their shoes on, their belt buckle, because there's going to be a short window here that they're going to be able to get out of town, okay? Pharaoh's going to give them a, a, a very short window. If you remember the story, what ends up happening is what? Her Pharaoh goes back after him. He's like, wait a minute, I messed up here. I'm, I'm mad, I'm angry, I'm, I'm going to go back after them. So he says, Eat it with haste. You, you got to make this quick. It's the whole reason of the unleavened bread as well. But then let's look at verse 12. He says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you, speaking to his people here, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then verse 14, right? This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Okay? We'll turn back over to John now. So that's where it's instituted. We, like, like I said, we, we later read on that this is what caused Pharaoh to uh, release God's people. So what we need to see here is that the Passover feast was a, it's a big deal. This is a very significant mark in the life of Jews. And God instituted it as a time to commemorate 
his provision for his people. It's like, hey, you're going to do this. You're going to remember me. You're going to remember what I did for you. You're going to remember that I, I, I released you. I, I provided for you. Now, it's important to note that the Passover and all other significant Old Testament events were mere foreshadows for the once and for all Passover lamb for Jews and Gentiles alike, Jesus Christ. It's all foreshadowing. We're all, what we see here is that this is to, to show, remember what John the Baptist says, right? Behold the lamb. Here's the one true lamb that is the once for all sacrifice for his people. And just as the Lord commanded Passover meal observance in remembrance of his redemption of those captive in Egypt, our Lord has instituted a new meal for New Testament Christians to observe. And what's that? The Lord's Supper. We now, as Old Testament Israel looked back and saw the lamb, the Passover, we now look back and we see the cross of Calvary as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We look at the body and the blood that was shed in our place. Lord's Supper is the meal that has now been instituted to us as New Testament Christians. And I don't think you're in sin if you observe the Passover. I know some Christians that, that do, and I don't think they're sinful for that. I think there's some uh, benefits to it. I think it's just fine. I just want to let you know that it's not commanded anymore. We're not commanded to observe the Passover. But in this point in time, it was. This was commanded. They, they had to go to observe this. In fact, all males over age 12 in Israel were commanded to go to Jerusalem for Passover. So, in obedience to that requirement, what does Jesus do? He goes. He goes to Jerusalem as Passover draws near. This is a pretty massive event. You had people coming from everywhere. This is something that was widely celebrated. It was a major holiday that everyone knew about. It would kind of be like Christmas or Easter is now, right? Even if people don't participate, they know, like, okay, the Passover is going on. There's people celebrating this. Uh, First century historian Josephus records numbers of two to three million people uh, that were actually gathered in Jerusalem during this time. Um, some other scholars and historians uh, are a little more conservative with the number. So even if we put it at one million people, if we take a, a, just a modest uh, guesstimation and say, hey, a million people were there, it's a pretty large group in little Jerusalem at this time. So Jesus has obediently made his way there. He's, he's made his way to Jerusalem. And then we see in verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So, okay, here we see the situation. Here we see what's going on here. 
Here's where things get a little messy. Jesus has walked in on the scene of an in-temple community market. See, those who traveled long distances would have found it very inconvenient to bring their sacrifices with them. Imagine carrying an oxen. That's a pretty hard uh, maneuver to take long journey. So the oxen, the sheep, the pigeons being sold were sold to people so they could use them in official worship in the temple. And even those that brought their own sacrifices, those that did make the journey with their own sacrifices, were usually forced to actually buy the sacrifices being sold, the animals being sold for sacrifice there in the temple. They had inspectors that would actually inspect every single animal. Uh, These inspectors usually were on the ends with those that were making money. Uh, So they were very quick to deny the sacrifice that one may have brought. Usually didn't pass inspection because they wanted people to buy the marked up animals being sold there. The money changers that we read about here were also offering a, a service to the people. Every male age 20 and up. They had to pay a temple tax, but the kicker was it had to be paid in a certain currency. So they would charge an exchange fee that was pretty high, uh, higher than what was normal here, that the people would have to use to, or they would exchange the currency that they brought from their land in exchange for the currency that was then being able to be used for the temple tax there for the Passover. They had a pretty rough situation going on here. They had a pretty messed up way of doing business. Here, the money changers and the animal merchants were grossly overcharging people They're taking full advantage of the massive influx of travelers coming to worship, coming to observe the Passover feast. But you kind of picture it for a minute, okay? People everywhere, probably likely a lot of of chatter, a lot of bartering probably going on, a lot of commotion going on. You've got, you know, pigeons cooing and sheep buying and Oxen doing whatever sound they make and a lot of stuff going on. And I I can imagine the smell probably wasn't very worshipful. It's not exactly what a house of worship should resemble here. Now listen, too. This was not Jesus' first time observing this type of scene, okay? Uh, Luke 2.41 tells us, now his parents went to Jerusalem, speaking of Jesus, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, had taken him to the Passover every year. He had been here before. Jesus had seen this before. 
but he didn't ever see it like he does now. See, before, Jesus is in the shadows. His public ministry has not started yet. Before, he is waiting for his commencement and an introduction onto the public scene by God himself. And so now that his public ministry has begun, guess what? Things look a lot different. 